Thank you, Don and Laura. And thank you, young people, uh, for the display of learning and with Bible truth and other things, the songs and the poem. And Miss uh, Beth has just uh, been a, a great lifesaver for us. Mrs. Cassandra Amandi having the baby has stepped out of the classroom. And Miss Beth, who's having her third, stepped into the classroom and and. And she's not maintained. We've actually, she has excelled and going forward and just a great, great help just to fit right in. It's a breath of fresh air. We thank the Lord for the foots and their ministry um, as it continues uh, to multiply in the lives of other children. First Corinthians chapter number two. We were there this morning. And so we'll be here tonight with a whole different message and an idea, but it still comes from the same passage, and I think this beginnings, the new beginnings of the Sunday morning will be in that series for a little bit, and then tonight, as well as Wednesday night on heaven, looking at heaven, and so if uh, you have questions about heaven, things you've wondered about, whether or not your, your animal is there. Um, you stay tuned Wednesday nights, and we'll we'll discuss that and look at that, and we um, uh, think about heaven in different light whenever there is a, a context of maybe a loved one uh, that has recently passed, and and we experienced the uh, the the burial yesterday of Christie's grandfather. Um, her dad's dad is a preacher for so many years and, and uh, just passed away Thursday and his funeral was on his birthday yesterday. His 98th birthday is what he would have been and, and, uh, and to, to be in a service uh, just to hear of what he was known for, to hear what his life was, was a great encouragement, great blessing and and there's just not a lot of people like M.A. Poole, and, and I'm thankful for the time the Lord allowed me to, to know him for 25 years. And there have been meetings that I had preached in and, and where he was in the congregation. And I would always say if M.A. Poole was in the congregation, God was going to meet with us. And there's just something about his uh, walking with the Lord, connecting to the Lord. And, and he was one of those old-fashioned uh, he held to some old-fashioned convictions that we would like to say timeless, but but he would have been in the day when, when he just did things because uh, he wanted to play it safe. And he didn't go to restaurants on Sunday. He didn't go to stores on Sunday, and uh, he he protected that day. And there's a lot of things like that. And, and some uh, found out in the funeral yesterday that people called him a fanatic. I thought, man, I got a, I got a lot to do to catch up to with that title, but it's nice to be fanatical about the things of God. And I've been to funerals where they would put jerseys and footballs and basketballs, a fishing rod, all the things that that person was known for, but to be known as one who's fanatical about the Lord, I take that because that's where He is, and so shall He ever be. And uh, it was just a great blessing, great reminder. So heaven has a little bit different perspective when you uh, think about people who have gone and, uh, and are there and wonder, well, what is it like? And hopefully you're on your way. And so it ought to have some relevance to you. 
1 Corinthians chapter 2, you there? Well, we won't get into the reading immediately. I'm going to walk through this. My great desire is that I don't lose you in the message. I don't ever want anybody to be bored, and I don't want to be so um, heady in, in dealing with things that you get lost. But I think it's important as we start into this series on how I know the Bible is God's Word that we lay some foundation and be able to at least give things. And because of the nature of it being recorded, uh, I want to be very careful in, in, in answering questions versus just opening up a can of worms. And, and so don't, don't try, try not to uh, put your brain in neutral. You should never do that when it comes to the Bible anyway. And, uh, and so there's some things I think will help in laying the groundwork and the foundation. And tonight I want us to look at this thought, understanding how God's Word comes to us. How is it that we have in our hand what we have? How did we get here? Books have been written about this. Thick books, hard to read books. Well, I don't want it to be that difficult. I want us to see in simplicity, and I think there are some things. If you take our revised Constitution, you can see some things in there that will help. But tonight I want to give you some things that, that I trust that you can at least carry with you and let this be the foundation. Remember we started on heaven and we talked about a theology of heaven. Well this will be a theology of the Bible, how we got it, and some things that will be of significance to us I believe. I was looking at a, a sermon on Psalm 118 and um, verse 24, this is the day which the Lord hath made. And just a great verse. And I came across someone who claimed Psalm 118 was the middle uh, chapter in the Bible. Now, this is not part of the message. This is just getting into it. Um, it really has nothing to do with the message, but it's, it's the Bible. It's talking about the Bible. So I just want to mention some facts here. And sometimes I, I've been... I've gotten in trouble because I just take at face value what somebody else says. So somebody else who's much more well-known than I am and, and uh, has much more authority says something that I thought, no, that, that's good, I, I'll, I'll use that. And then I get, I get corrected. They don't get corrected, I get corrected. So I'm always having to, to fact check. And one way when it comes to illustrations, because you can search the internet and you can find these fact checkers. So now I just say, I'm not even worrying whether it's true or not. I just say, I recently read. And so leave it to you if you want to take the time to go fact check instead of reading your Bible to find out the greater truth I was talking about, you have at it. So I'm off the hook on that one. But with this, I wondered if Psalm 118 was the middle chapter of the Bible. So with a Bible and calculator, here are the some interesting facts. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible, 929 in the Old Testament, 260 in the New. Psalm 117 would be the middle chapter of the Bible if you go by chapters. In other words, there's 594 chapters before Psalm 117, and there's 594 chapters after Psalm 117. Psalm 117 is the shortest chapter of the Bible. It only has two verses. If you average out all the chapters and verses in the Bible, it comes to 18. That's the average. If you took all of them and just averaged out based upon the number you have. 
Now, if it takes a minute and a half to read an average chapter, the average book in the Bible can be read in 27 minutes. In other words, you can read through the Bible in 66 segments of 27 minutes. Or to put it differently, you can read through the average book in the Bible in the same amount of time it takes to watch a half hour uh, show on, on TV. So if you divide 1,189 by 365, you get 3.2575 or about three and one-fourths. In other words, if you read three to four chapters a day, it will get through the whole Bible in a year. That's very doable for, for practically anybody. You can accomplish the same thing by reading two and a half chapters of the Old Testament every day and three-fourths of a chapter in the New Testament. Now, there are 260 chapters in the New Testament. And if you take the weekdays of the year and five times 52, you also come up with 260. So if you read one chapter of the New Testament every weekday, taking the weekends off, you can complete the entire New Testament in one solid year perfectly. In other words, it's doable. And then there are many who have taken the challenge of reading the Bible in three months. We've had a number who have done. How many have read the Bible in at least a three-month span? Would you raise your hand? All right. Good. Good. Wonderful. And uh, anybody get it in in a month? Anyone try that? I've tried it, and then I only get it in in three months. And so um, anytime I try to do it in three months, I get it in in six months. So my, 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 um, my, my trying is swerving a little bit. But anybody get it in in a month? Uh, it, it, takes, it, takes a, it takes a lot of time. It takes a good, you're really looking at um, uh, a solid few hours sitting down doing that. And, um, or if you're going to try to keep up with Alexander Scorby, you've got to put him on two, number two speed. And so he sounds like one of the chipmunks. But <laughs> it is how we did it back in the college days, Dr. Childs. We had to... He taught Pentateuch. Pentateuch is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Dr. Childs taught those, and he would require that we had to read it through, I think, four times, three times. I think I did it four times. I should have got extra credit for that, but, <laughs> you know, but I think you gave me some extra credit just for showing up. But, uh, but we would sometimes find we didn't gotten our, all of our reading in. So those are then the days when we had cassette tapes. Um, somebody will have to explain that to you when you get home what those things were. <laughs> but we had Alexander Scorby on cassette tape and, and we, someone had one of those high-end stereos that took up, well, it took up half of the bunk bed that we, that we stayed in. But We'd put that on high-speed dubbing, and, and we were trying to get Alexander Scorby in through the night, trying to finish the Pentateuch, and um, it's, not, it's not the ideal way to do it, it, it but, but some of it stuck. It, it did, did stick, but um, I encourage you not to go that way. Let's get into the message. 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. It's very important to know and understand what the Bible says. The Bible is the very Word of God to man. Everything our Creator wants us to know about Him, ourselves, the past, and the future, He's given us in the Bible. 
The Bible not only contains the Word of God, it is the Word of God. It is like no other book on earth. It is holy, entirely truth. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. This is what Jesus prayed to his father for us concerning the Bible. The word of God is the only perfect thing in the world. Isn't that something? Everybody needs the word of God to live a good, fulfilling life. Jesus quoted the Old Testament scriptures when he said in Matthew 4 and verse 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Now, how do we know for sure that the Bible is God's word? I, I think for some, you, you've just been in an environment, maybe you grew up in church and the Bible you have is the Bible that's always been used and you would continue to use it until the day you die without ever questioning it. I know that, that I would. I, I would just, I have no reason to use anything else. This is all that I've ever known and this is what I'm comfortable with. But when there are questions, how are we going to answer the questions about the Bible that we have? with the Bible that we have. And so therefore, it would help us to understand how do we know for sure that the Bible is God's Word. Let me just mention some brief things about the Bible. The original writings of the Bible came directly from God through human authors. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew and Aramaic. Now, Hebrew, of course, is an ancient language that's been revived today and is spoken in Israel. Aramaic is also an ancient language and is sort of a combination of Arabic and Hebrew that is still spoken in many of the lands in the Middle East today and was spoken in Jesus' time. The universal language during the time of Jesus was Greek. And so the New Testament was penned in Greek. So the Old Testament primarily is Hebrew and Aramaic and, and then the New Testament is Greek. And everyone in the world, the educated world at that time of Jesus was Greek. And so the understood language was Greek. So when the authors of the New Testament wrote down the Gospels and the epistles of the New Testament, they wrote them in Greek. Now, in God's province, we no longer, of course, have any of the original text or documents of the Old or the New Testaments. And so how can we know that we have God's Word since we don't have those original copies? Since we all need what God has said, God has made it possible for any of us and all of us to understand the Bible. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to study some of the principles that lead to an understanding of God's Word. We want to experience God, then we have to be able to experience Him through His Word. So to start understanding the Bible, we must understand what the Bible is and how God uses it to get His truth to us. Confusion about these most basic matters has confused thousands of people into thinking that they cannot get much out of the Bible. As I mentioned, I think, to the teachers and the men this morning, there is a resurgent once again within our group, and so-called our group, that 
is throwing uh, light of doubt upon this matter of our Bible. But as I said this morning, don't get thrown when someone starts questioning the legitimacy of the King James Bible and the Bible that we have. Don't get thrown by that. For many times the real issue is not the Bible itself, but it's a whole manner of behavior that they're wanting to change. And many times the Bible becomes the smokescreen in which they get it done. And so because there are some that are confused and so there are some uh, critics of the Bible and so there are those who seemingly may be more knowledgeable and, and experts in this realm that have cast doubts, how do we know that we have the Bible? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us about the writing of the Bible. And about how God helps people understand his book. And I want us to see tonight just four truths about the scriptures. These four truths, very basic. And there's a lot of things that is not going to be on the screen. But you're going to get these four truths. Now the doctrine that we hold dear here in this church. And most Bible believers hold dear. Is one that falls under the, this first point of divine Revelation, divine revelation. And under that is the doctrine of biblical inerrancy or infallibility. That simply means that every word of the Bible is true. Every word of the Bible is accurate. And what this matter of inerrancy, infallibility teaches is that the Bible contains no errors when it was given in its original documents. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul's writing to the Corinthians and the, the church, the believers, and begins with a clear statement indicating that God has a message to communicate to mankind. Notice in verse number 1 of chapter 2, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of of God. Paul, he's the human writer of this epistle. He's one in chapter 1, verse 1, that's called an apostle. He's a sent one who preached the gospel to the people of the first century Roman Empire. And the core of that gospel was Jesus Christ and him crucified. Notice in verse 2. For I determined not to know anything among you, save, except, here's the core of that gospel. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, and, that, and he goes on to talk about that in chapter number 15 when he says, I declare unto you the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in delivering this divine message, Paul was empowered by the Holy Spirit. In him delivering this message, it's the Holy Spirit that empowered him. You see that in verse 4. And my speech... And my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, the Lord is speaking through him. Now, contrast that with verses 6 through 8. And notice the difference between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. Verse 6, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are 
perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see, he's making a contrast here. The princes, that is the principal people of this world. Um, they understand the wisdom of this world. They might be educated. They might be sophisticated. But to the wisdom of God, he says it's a mystery. It's hidden wisdom. Had they understood God's wisdom, he says they would not have crucified Jesus. Now, we all know that the wisdom of this world is in different forms. We hear it from such sources as human science, human tradition, human philosophy. Even though this way of thinking dominates the minds of most men, it is wrong thinking that leads to wrong actions. The wisdom of God, however, is the truth. And it is contrary in most points to the accepted wisdom of this world. For example, compare the way of thinking that Jesus set forth in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter number 5, with the usual thinking of the people of this world. Quite a contrast. You know, the truth is when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount... Many people know nuances of it. They may know that phrase, that several three-chapter sermon of Jesus. But the Bible says at the end of chapter 4 going into chapter 5 that there's a multitude following Jesus. He turns from the multitude and he sits down with his disciples and he teaches them the constitution of the Christian life of being a disciple. You know, he had to turn from the multitude to teach this because the multitude is not ready to hear or ready to digest what Jesus demands when it comes to following him. Now, he didn't show a disinterest in the multitude because he was turning to his disciples to tell them, this is how you need to think, this is how you need to live in order that you might reach that multitude. But remember in John chapter 6, a multitude of disciples turned away from Jesus thinking that what Jesus demanded was too hard. So the wisdom of this world is far different than the wisdom of God. What a contrast. And we hear all the world's wisdom from three human sources. And as we mentioned above, science, tradition, and philosophy. But how can we learn God's wisdom? Well, that's verse number nine. And this was our text this morning. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them to, uh, unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. I hath not seen. What is he talking about? Well, this isn't going to come. You're not going to get the wisdom of God by scientific observation and study nor ear heard. You're not going to get this through tradition handed down from generation to generation. Neither have entered into the heart of man. It's not from the meditation and contemplation of the great philosophers. 
The things which God hath prepared for them that love him, but God hath revealed them to us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. So, how do we get God's wisdom? Well, God's truth comes to us by revelation. Revelation. By God's revealing it to us through His Holy Spirit. These wonderful truths are described as the things, he said, which God hath prepared for them that love him. And he describes this revelation by the Holy Spirit as the deep things of God. Now we get these things, again, not through science, tradition, or human philosophy, but by divine revelation. There are many things that man cannot know unless God tells him. Such things as who he is, who we are, how everything came to be, why everything came to be, what is right and what is wrong, where everything is headed and how we can know the Lord. And if we discover the answers to such questions, they will come as God reveals them. So God has revealed his truth to man through the Bible. But how did that come about? Divine revelation. The Spirit of God communicated the mind of God and we have in the Bible. You said, well, that opens up more questions. Well, let's continue with more answers. Number two. Here's the second truth tonight on how we uh, got our Bible and how we can understand that we have God's Word. Number two tonight is verbal inspiration. Divine revelation is the Spirit of God providing us the mind of God. But second of all, there's verbal inspiration. Now this is the process that God used to write down His revelation. This is the process of how it comes from God's mind through His Spirit to us in ink. If God is going to reveal himself through a written word, through a written book, there must be a process involved. How is God going to get this book to us? Remember Joseph Smith of the Mormon cult who believed that God would drop it out of the sky and claim to have received the book of Mormon? Or is God going to drop a golden tablet out of the sky and then directly uh, somebody is to dig and find those golden tablets and on those golden tablets you find God's revelation of himself to mankind. And God will only reveal that to one man in all the world. Is that the way that God will do it? And then the revelation is going to be interpreted and interrupted and interpreted. And is it going to change from time to time? No, I don't think so. Rather, God chose a method called inspiration. Now look carefully at verses 11 through 13. For what man knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, 
not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And so these verses help us understand some things about this matter of verbal inspiration. Verse 13 is describing for us verbal inspiration. The word verbal means word for word. Verbal inspiration as opposed to what other kind of inspiration? Well, a lot of versions, translations of the Bible, they believe in thought inspiration. And so the NIV and others, they would have been written claiming thought inspiration. And so it's just in a thought, you can write whatever you want to write, doesn't make any difference because they believe it was the thoughts that were inspired. We believe, however, it was word for word that was inspired. And so verse 13 describes verbal, word for word, inspiration, outbreathing is what the word means by saying that Paul and other writers of the books of the Bible gave God's revealed truths to us, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. See, the Holy Spirit gave the writers the very words with which to express the truth that was to be revealed. I want to say that ought to make you glad that divine revelation came through verbal inspiration. Why? Because man cannot comprehend truth apart from words. If somehow God told Paul some great truth and then let him write it down in his own words, Paul might not have got it exactly right. But instead, the Holy Spirit gave the truth, also gave the very words with which to express that truth, for which we ought to say, praise God. Now, would you hold your place here and go to another critical passage that will help in your thinking? I would say in this matter of understanding how I got my Bible, always keep in mind 1 Corinthians 2. The other is go over to 2 Peter chapter number 1. 2 Peter chapter number 1. 2 Peter 1 and notice in verse number 20. Peter writes, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And we're talking about verbal inspiration. And so he tells us how this happened. God guided. We get that from the word moved there. You see that? Holy men of God spake as they were moved. Meaning God guided the writers of the scripture by dictating the words that they were to write. 2 Timothy chapter number 3 is another passage you ought to write down and keep in mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter number 1 and 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. The Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, and it gives us the list, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. 
But the Greek word that's translated as given by inspiration of God, it's really one Greek word. It's theopneustos. And that one word to try to find a way to, to explain what theopneustos is, they came up with given by inspiration of God. And it simply means God breathed. God breathed these very words. The words of the Bible were written as if they had been breathed out of the mouth of Almighty God Himself. Why? Because that's what happened. Matthew chapter 4, again, verse number 4. Remember, Jesus said, As it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. Therefore, every word of the Bible is the word of God. God breathed in those words into their hearts and into the writer's minds. And I want to tell you this as a side note, that idea of how the Spirit of God used holy men of God is a good demonstration, an example of what it should look like in living the Christian life. God took all these men, different personalities, different backgrounds, over different periods of time, but they simply yielded themselves to God and the Spirit of God used these men in their personality and form, yet they recorded exactly what God Almighty had them to record. Being filled with the Spirit is your personality, your person, animated and enabled and empowered and filled by the God of heaven. What a thought. What a thought. So, this matter of verbal inspiration, you'll sometimes hear this word plenary verbal. This is known as plenary verbal inspiration or the belief of plenary verbal biblical inspiration. Plenary just means full or all. All scriptures God breathed, all of it. So we believe in the plenary verbal inspiration of the Bible. All scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16, not part. Not most, but all Scripture. Now, all Scripture may not be equally interesting. The genealogies of Genesis are not as interesting as the parables or the miracles of Jesus, but that is, I'm saying on a subjective level, but it is all God-breathed. The genealogies are no less God-breathed than the miracles and the parables. All scriptures are the word of God, all. Then verbal simply means the words again, not just thoughts of the writers, but the words are inspired of God. So God didn't just give the thoughts to Moses and to Daniel and to Paul and to Peter and James he gave them the exact words that they were to write down. Because if you change the words of Scripture, you can change the entire meaning of Scripture. And that is what you have to be very careful with when even interpreting the Bible into another language. Because the, the danger of changing a word is the danger of changing truth or doctrine. I was in Mongolia 
several years ago and right before COVID. And many of you remember, went over with Charles Keene and and uh, he had been underway in, in bringing about a Bible. He met with the president of Mongolia and was able to work on getting a Bible translated into their language. And I sat in on the translation session. I sat in for hours. And we're just sitting in for hours of what they would do hours, eight hours a day. And they had been at it for a couple years. And so I wanted to see what it was like, and Brother Keen wanted me to be able to see what it's like in the day, uh, in, in the life of Bible translating. You know, in those three to four hours, we didn't even get past one verse. As they worked it, thought through it, talked through it, not because of their lack of understanding of the Hebrew. We were in, a, in an Old Testament passage not because they didn't understand what God was saying, but trying to understand the nuance of putting it into somebody else's language and the challenge there. See, here's what some versions and translations have done, and it's just easy for people to spout off and take the abbreviations of a version, translations say, no, we're against that, but not really sure why we're against it. But here's the, the great danger of those and why they're problematic. It's because of thought inspiration and because they hold to thought inspiration, they're able to adjust and massage some of those words. Let me give you an example. Many have changed the meaning of the word virgin referring to Mary and have simply referred to her as Mary the young woman. But if you eliminate the reality that Mary was a virgin, then you've changed the whole doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you've destroyed the fundamental truth of salvation. And so the word must be inspired. Not only the thoughts, but also every word is inspired. Number three. Here's a third truth. Are you following Still okay. This is, uh, if you were to take this in a Bible college setting, this would be an entire semester of stuff. And so, but th there's a need to work deeper in some of this, but there's also a simplicity to it. And I want it to be where, where any of us can take this and at least hold on to them, write them down, and we know where we can look back to. Here's the third truth providential preservation. Providential preservation. Now, this is getting us to where the King James has significance. Because many who would hold to the NIV would track so far with what I've said, except for verbal. They believe in inspiration. They just don't believe in verbal inspiration. But I hope I've given you sufficient scripture that would show why we hold to a verbal inspiration. But then we lose more aspects of the, the pie as we move on to providential preservation. Let me say what I want to say about this and then I'll try to tie that part together. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul has been telling us about the actual process of divine revelation and verbal inspiration. Now, the things that were going on as he wrote the epistle. 
Uh, look at what he wrote. Turn over to chapter 14. Go to the end of the book. I want you to, to see this. Maybe you're wondering, is this really that big of a deal? Does, does this matter to some? It does. In fact, there are people who in this, this year, um, or we're, no, not this year, in the year 2022, who refuse to come here because of the position that we're taking on this, and we didn't leave more room for other versions and translations. But here's the reason why. In chapter 14, notice in verse 37. If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. Notice the phrase, the commandments of the Lord. So Paul's writings that are included in our Bibles are actually the commandments of the Lord. Now remember again 2 Timothy 3 when he said all scripture is given by inspiration of God. What is he referring to? Well Paul is talking about both the scriptures and that's long before uh, he's written these things and, and um, well, let's turn to 2 Timothy 3. It'll be easy for you to see it. I, I, I can tell you, but I, I want you to see it. He's writing about the things long before he's written. He's writing about the things that he is currently writing. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, and notice verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so he's talking about both scriptures of before his writings, that's verse 15, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise into salvation. But he's also speaking of the scriptures that he wrote, verse 14, verse 15, verse 16. So he's saying that all these things, the things back in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37, the, the commandments of the prophets, things that I wrote back when you were a child, things that were written uh, in this past week, things that, that may continue to be written that come from God. He says this means that the scriptures, both Old Testament, that's written before Jesus came, the New Testament that was written after Jesus came, and as they then existed, it's all inspired of God. God breathed all of that. This says that the Lord has preserved the text. That is the inspiration, what God breathed out. But when we talk about number three, providential preservation, what we're saying is this is the Lord preserving that body of text. That's God preserving his actual words for succeeding generations. See, Paul says the things that were written before Christ came, after Christ came, when you were a child, Timothy, the things written now, God has a plan in place. It's known as preservation. And that's how God is going to preserve the text, preserve his word. And of course, this is very, very important. If the Lord revealed his truth by inspiring the writers of Scripture, 
but he did not oversee the transmission of the text, the word of God could easily have been lost over the years. Printing was not invented until what? About the 15th century. And so copies of the Bible were what? They were handwritten for many centuries. Handwritten copies or manuscripts are much more likely to contain errors than printed copies. So God's providential preservation was essential to our having the very word of God today. So again, when Jesus said, it is written, Matthew chapter 4. He said it again in Matthew chapter 4, verse number 4, verse number 7, verse number 10, Matthew 11 and verse 10, Matthew 21, verse 13, Matthew 26 and verse 31. It is written. See, Jesus' words were recorded in the perfect tense of the Greek verb. It's in the Greek, it's perfect tense. Perfect tense simply means it's an action that's done in the past that has present results. The perfect tense of this word indicates the preservation of the original text. Jesus said, it is written. It's something that happened already. It's past. But he says the results, they're just as fresh today when Jesus said them. They're just as fresh when you read it. It's, past, it's perfect tense. It's, that's the verb, that's the, the tense and the verb that it's used. And we see that what Jesus said about this matter of preservation in Matthew 5, 18. Jesus said this, for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. You see, English translations up through the so-called King James Version of the Bible followed a text based on the assumption that God has preserved His Word over the centuries. Abundant evidence of the truth of this assumption is found in thousands of old Bible manuscripts that we have today. However, nearly all of the new English translations of the 20th century and 21st century have come from a revised text based on the assumption that providential preservation, it did not happen. And that the true text of Scripture must be reconstructed from variant readings scattered among the manuscripts by means of educated guesswork called textual criticism. Now, there are many institutions. I won't name them. If I preach too long, I might name them. If I just get weary, I'll start naming them. But, but most... Most believe in preservation. They all believe because the Bible, they, we can find verses that tell us God preserved His Word. What they will say is, we just don't know how. Really? You mean God maybe didn't think that through when He was putting all this together? Do you know that there is a version of the Bible 
that man has had. In English-speaking world, there is a version that has been used in every major revival. It's the one that has made it even in the darkest of times. And for this reason, I say it's best, and with other reasons we've mentioned up to this point, it's best to stick with the old King James Version Bible if you believe that God has preserved His inspired Word. It's the one that Charles Spurgeon used. If you don't believe that God preserved His inspired uh, text instead of thought, preservation or thought um, uh, inspiration rather but you believe in verbal inspiration and God's preservation if you believe that then you would have to say there's never been a dark time there's not even in the dark ages there's never been a time where the word of God has been lost but for those who refuse to accept that God painstakingly took care of one of the, the most important messages that he could ever provide man and give us something with such carefulness and clarity, ensuring that there's never been a time in the history of mankind where there was not a means to getting a hold of the word of God. Let me give you this before we move to the to the last one if i were to put this in in a very simplified six thoughts what we believe about the bible because this is often debated in fundamental circles of which we would be part of that it's forced us to kind of become textual critics and you say i just don't ever hear these it's because we don't usually talk about this here but we're very clear about this where we stand and so preaching about the Bible doesn't always help us but occasionally we need to preach about it so that we can be helped in understanding why we must preach it but if you lose confidence in it the authority of God's word you're going to lose confidence in the fact you can experience God and so this article this this body this these thoughts I'm going to give you Try is just simply trying to clarify Canaan's position regarding the text of scriptures. Now there's not enough room here to prove these conclusions. I'm just going to make six assertions based upon what I've said. And in an attempt to avoid this pendulum swing that is taking place within our churches all around us. So we believe, number one, I think Brother Cherry is going to put these on the screen for you. Here's what we believe. Here's what I believe. And I've, we've tried to go through and, and, and communicate these things over time and by different ways, but here's, here's what I, I, I would believe. That the 66 books of the Old and New Testament were God-breathed or given by the inspiration of God, resulting in a product that was inerrant and infallible has no errors and not capable of having errors in the original autographs. Number two, we believe that God has fulfilled His promise to preserve His Word for every generation of human history through copies and translations of those original writings. Number three, that inspiration applied only to the autographs but that their words have been accurately retained through God's preservation. 
Number four, that God has preserved his word in the Masoretic Hebrew text of the Old Testament, the Textus Receptus of the Greek New Testament. Number five, that the King James Version of the Bible is the best English translation available, not only because it is an excellent translation, but because it is a translation of the best Hebrew and Greek text. Again, why is that? Why, why, why are we saying it's Because it's the ones that were based upon the verbal inspiration and the, uh, and the preservation of the, the very words of God. Number six, we believe that consistency in position demands that we use only the, the ones that were mentioned, the Hebrew and the Greek text of the, um, the, the, the Masoretic Hebrew text, the Textus Receptus of the Greek New Testament, and what we would use in, in our classrooms of the school, what we would use in Sunday school rooms, what we do use preaching in chapel and preaching in the services here. Amen. So these statements essentially explain the position. Now regarding the preservation of Scripture, some institutions that are considered fundamentalists, they've disavowed that God has even promised to preserve His Word at all. But Canaan's thinking is this, that this view is negated by such verses, and I don't have these listed up there, but I can mention some to you if you want to write them down. Psalm 33, verse 11. Psalm 100 and verse 5. Psalm 111, verse 7 and 8. Psalm 117, verse 2. Psalm 119, verse 89 through 90. Psalm 119, verse 144. Psalm 119, verse 152. Psalm 119, verse 160. Isaiah 40, verse number 8. Isaiah 59, verse 21. Matthew 5 and verse 18. Matthew 24, verse 35. Luke 21, verse 33. John 10 and verse 35. Acts 7 and verse 38, and 1 Peter 1 and verse 25. Since it's our desire to see the Bible as the only authority for faith and practice, I really don't see how all these passages can be just simply explained away by those who reject the fact that God truly has promised to preserve His Word. Now, regarding the choice of the Texas Receptus for the Greek, um, there is one that's prevalent that's used at certain big institutions, Christian institutions. And they would use Westcott and Hort theory of textual transmission. And, um, and I appreciate the writers, and, 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 I'm, and I know I'm drifting a little bit, and this is beginning to sound like Greek. It's not Greek, it's Hebrew. And, um, and so it, they would say, they would use this a lot. The, we would hold to the Masoretic text, but there's a Westcott and Hort theory that simply says um, we understand that there's a lot of conjecture, probabilities, presumptions, ambiguity, suppositions. So I appreciate their honesty. But in their attempt to explain why they're using an inferior text in which to come up with their New American Standard, their English Standard Version, we've chosen to accept rather that which has been available to the largest number of believers for the greatest period of time in church history, history which is the stream of text represented by the Textus Receptus in the Greek and the, um, the Masoretic text in the, in the uh, 
uh, Old Testament in the Hebrew. And more specifically, I liked and, and have held to the text published by the Trinitarian Bible Society, which follows Beza's 1590 edition and Scrivener's edition of 1894. It's just getting a little bit more specific. Now, regarding the usage of the King James, we believe that it's very well translated but that the English language has undergone some changes in the past as is partially reflected in the fact that the King James in, in widespread use today is not and in fact the 1611 version. I don't know if anyone has the 1611 in here. Most people don't. Since English is a living language, the modern day connotation of words such as conversation in the Bible, charity, sadly the word gay, is much different from their 1611 meanings. Therefore, it's wisest to consult the original languages where the divine intent is unchanged. Now, this is not refuting the King James at all. What I'm saying is the reason people put aside the King James is because they will say that doesn't make sense. That's too hard to understand because they will only consult what the words mean today rather than what they meant when they were written. This, again, does not refute the King James, but it keeps us from changing the meanings of the old English words to conform to modern usages. And... Sometimes people say, well, I just don't understand. I think those are, those are hard words, and we don't speak that kind of, of English today. And, and if we don't give a version in the hands of people that is modern, we're doing nothing more than what the Roman Catholic Church did during those dark ages where they kept the word of God from the people because we refused to put in the hands of people a, a, a Bible they can understand. Well, part of refuting that is the King James was never the common man's language. People in the streets in the 1600s didn't speak that way. This was the king's English. So to say that they understood it and spoke it back then, well, some may have, and there are still some that may speak this way, but this was never common man's gutter language. This was king's English. And I think the loftiness, there's a beauty to it. But the truth is, it is the very word of God that God has preserved for the English-speaking people. And we do well to study. But let me give you one fourth thought. I believe we have, if you have a King James Bible in your hand, we have today the divinely revealed, verbally inspired providentially preserved word of God. And if you have that, then you still have a problem. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. We'll be done in just a couple minutes. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14. 
all the work, thousands of years that God put into divinely revealing, verbally inspiring, providentially preserving his word still leaves us with the problem. 1 Corinthians 2.14, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, when he says natural man, he's referring to the unconverted, the unregenerated, the lost man. And he says the natural man cannot receive or know the things that come from the Spirit of God. These things, he says, the things that come from God, these divinely revealed, verbally inspired, providentially preserved words of God, they can only be discerned only with the help of God's Spirit. No unsaved individual has the Holy Spirit within him. Romans chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, Jude verse 19. Therefore, a lost man cannot understand the Bible even though God gave it word for word. Most people do not, their problem is not needing a new version of the Bible to better understand it. Most people need a new version of themselves to understand it. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter number three, verses three through seven. You must be born from above. When a person is born again, what happens? God's spirit, the same one who inspired the very words that came from the mind of God to the, the very heart and mind of man, the same spirit of God literally moves inside the very soul of man. And God's spirit moves into his life in John 14, verses 15 through 26. and John 16, verses 12 through 13 tells us that the Holy Spirit, he becomes our teacher and our guide into all truth. Look at verse 15 and 16 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. No lost person can discern. Verse 15, but he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. In the Bible, we have the mind of Christ. By the Spirit of God, we can understand it. So this evening, if you have in your lap, in your hands, the divinely revealed, verbally inspired, providentially preserved Word of God, there's one-fourth critical factor that is needed for every one of us if we're going to experience God and know the mind of God. And that is we must have spiritual illumination. Spiritual illumination. You say, well, I'm saved and the Bible still seems dead because you need a spiritual awakening. You need God to turn the light on. In the Bible, we have the mind of Christ but, let me say that again. In the Bible, we have the mind of Christ. But it's by the Holy Spirit that you can understand it. You need to be born again by faith in Jesus Christ. You say, 
check, I've done that. Then you need to yield to the control and the leadership and the lordship of the Holy Spirit so that he can help you understand what he wrote. Would you say, would you pray with me over these next few weeks and on your journey of experiencing God? Would you pray the prayer of Psalm 119, verse number 18? The psalmist prayed this. I encourage you to pray the same. Every time you go to open your Bible, every time you sit down at your Bible fellowship, every time you sit down at a discipleship setting, every time you come into the auditorium, every time you sit down to get into the Word of God, pray as the psalmist. And by the way, the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this for you and I to pray. The Holy Spirit of God, he revealed this through divine uh, revelation. He verbally inspired this and he providentially preserved this, but he's given us the key to experience spiritual illumination. Here's the prayer. Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. I want to tell you, that's one of those prayers you pray. God says, I'll do it. I'll do it. You want to experience God? And would you get a hold of these four basic concepts? You don't have to go into the depth, and, but just these four basic things we have in our hands. The divinely revealed, verbally inspired, providentially preserved, but it requires spiritual illumination book. What a wonderful God we have. Let's stand together, please. Lord, thank you for truth.